This is the 21st century. So rather than begin with a 2729 page hard copy of Bob Hefner's CV, uh, I thought I would go straight to the internet and share briefly <laughs> with you uh, what I believe is Bob's latest publication, which appeared in a blog. This is the 21st century. Actually, it's an SSRC blog, the Social Science Research Council, uh, a week ago today. It's a review of a book that the Islamologists in the room, some of you may even have read, although it only came out last month. Um, and it's a book by a well-known analyst of Islam, Abdullahi An Naim, at Emory University. Uh, and it's called Islam and the Secular State. It has a fascinating argument, uh, the essence of which is that there is an Islamic secular state, or there is an Islamic road, a properly Islamic road to the secular state. Needless to say, in some quarters at least, this is a controversial assertion. In Bob's review of the book, you have, and I encourage you to Google it, you have magnificently displayed what seems to me to be perhaps at least one of his governing intellectual characteristics if I may, you know, I'm an academic, so you always have to say something momentous, even, <laughs> even out of perhaps, with your respect, minor material, <laughs> uh, because the review only lasts for a few pages. Uh, it's characteristically Hefner-esque uh, in the following sense. On the one hand, it's very empathic uh, with Abdullahi An-Naim's argument, and it's normatively so because Abdullahi, without going into the details of who he is, is trying to work out a situation which, from his point of view, would be better for Muslims and for non-Muslims than the situation that we tend to have now. <clears throat> On the other hand, aside from his normative empathy, Bob is a scholar. And so there is a certain empirical concern that although Al-Naim may believe that it is possible uh, to have a perfectly Islamic, thoroughly Islamic approach to a secular state. In fact, the, the situation on the ground in what we loosely refer to as the Muslim world, the actual facts in Muslim-majority countries make this, to say the least, a difficult proposition when it comes to the realistic question of implementation. Now, that balance, that judiciousness, I think is characteristic uh, a signal characteristic of the work of Professor Robert uh, Hefner. This is the first of four events. We're calling the entire sequence Civil Islam Beyond the Headlines. I should add that the subtitle Beyond the Headlines, you know, Bob Gregg is here, my co-conspirator, comes from us, not from Bob Hefner. So he's free to disassociate himself from something that must have surprised him when he saw it on the poster uh, just a, a few hours ago. The implication of this title, however, I think should be perhaps already clear to all of you. When we read about Islam in the media, the image that tends to be conveyed, if I may say so with due respect to the media, is one of incivility, not to mention extremism or even violence. Tonight and over the next three afternoons, uh, Professor Hefner will be looking beyond these media images at Islam in various forms, including what he calls civil Islam, and in particular the fascinating dynamics 
between Islam on the one hand and democracy on the other. The book, Civil Islam, which introduced the term, I dare say, into the discourse on Islam, was published in the year 2000, eight years ago. Tonight's lecture, Civil Islam Revisited the Prospects and Meanings of Muslim Democracy, you could consider an effort to reconsider and update the concept of civil Islam, perhaps including in the light of events and circumstances the empirical realities that have unfolded in the eight years since uh, the book was published. The seminars that he will give beginning tomorrow afternoon <clears throat> in a different smaller room here at the same Humanities Center, and they will all begin at 4.30 p.m. Uh, you can see I'm trying to hook you. <laughs> uh, they will be in a smaller venue. There will be a greater opportunity for discussion and they will be on the following topics. Tomorrow's topic, varieties of Islamism from radical to democratic. Wednesdays, schooling Islam, madrasas and the remaking of Muslim modernity. And the last one on Thursday afternoon at 4.30, Muslim politics in Southeast Asia, which is how Bob and I first got to know each other. We are both Southeast Asianists, although he's gone on to much larger ponds uh, than I. Muslim politics in Southeast Asia, a democratic Islam hijacked or reinvigorated. <clears throat> so please, I hope you're going to be sufficiently intrigued by the presentation you're about to hear to consider taking part in those uh, perhaps more detailed explorations of various aspects of his overall topic of uh, civil uh, Islam. And now, having reversed the normal order, let me briefly introduce in the traditional way, <clears throat> the 20th century way, Robert Hefner. Bob Hefner is our inaugural Li Kongqian Distinguished Fellowship Fellow. This is a fellowship that was endowed thanks to a collaborative arrangement between Stanford University's Walter H. Shorenstein Asia Pacific Research Center on the one hand and the National University of Singapore on the other. If I had time, I would describe the subsequent evolution of this fellowship. Suffice it to say that we will have uh, another fellow arriving actually next month and we'll have actually two, one fellow and one lecturer, uh, on hand for various periods during the coming academic year here at Stanford. Bob Hefner is a professor of anthropology at Boston University where he heads the program on Islam and democracy. He's the author or editor of more than a dozen books and many, many more scholarly articles, chapters, not to mention book reviews such as the one I just uh, cited, uh, op-ed pieces, he's been extraordinarily prolific and he is certainly a leading figure in the study of Islam in the English language and perhaps in the Indonesian language as well. As evidence of his prominence in Islamic studies, suffice it to note the invitation Bob received and accepted to edit a forthcoming volume of the New Cambridge History of Islam, Muslims and Modernity, Society and Culture Since 1800, and I think it's appropriately transdisciplinary that an anthropologist should be asked to edit a book that is so clearly historical in scope. As evidence of his reputation in Asian studies, I need only cite his election to the vice presidency of the Association for Asian Studies uh, here in the United States, which assures him under AAS rules of becoming president of that organization for the year 2009-2010. On behalf of Shorenstein, a. Park, I would like in particular to thank the Abbasi Program in Islamic Studies for its generosity in supporting the study of Islam at Stanford and also in supporting tonight's event and the seminars that follow, as well as the Stanford Humanities Center for providing the venue. Without their support and cooperation, uh, this uh, intellectual experiment would not have been possible. <clears throat> 
that's more than enough from me. Let's hear from Bob. Thank you very much, Don. Um, there are some introductions where one feels uh, inadequate in the face of the introduction, and I am afraid I feel that way a little bit tonight. But thank you very much, Don, for that uh, wonderfully generous uh, introduction. And thank you all for coming tonight. And I want to thank the Abbasi Center for inviting me to, uh, to speak as well. Uh, what I want to talk about today is actually not going to focus very much on Indonesia. I, uh, I've been working both as an academic but also as somebody involved in public debates on the Muslim world more generally. And I thought that for the first night, and actually for a couple of the nights, I would focus more on the general questions that surround Muslim politics. So that's what my uh, discussion tonight will attempt to do. I hope that's the right tack, looking around the room and seeing that, in fact, there's uh, a large number of people from other parts of the Muslim world. I, I, I am at least optimistic that I may have chosen correctly. The end of the Cold War in the late 1980s raised hopes for democratic reforms in the Muslim-majority countries of the world. However, as we all know, the breakdown of the political process in Algeria, first of all during 1991-92, uh, a few at that time restricted outbreaks of terrorist violence in the mid-1990s, and then finally, of course, the 9-11 attacks in the United States, followed by U.S. intervention in Afghanistan and Iraq, all led many Western analysts to conclude, particularly policy analysts, to conclude that Muslim countries are the great exception to the democratizing currents of our age. As most famously expressed in, as many of you probably know, Samuel Huntington's The Clash of Civilizations, several commentators saw a darker meaning in these events. They suggested that the putative democracy deficit, as it came to be referred to, in the Muslim world is the result not of institutional impasses or momentary imbalances of power, but of an abiding civilizational incompatibility between Islam and democracy. Huntington clarified this point by observing that one of the most important preconditions for democracy in the West was Christianity's separation of church and state. By contrast, he wrote in that same book, in Islam, there is no such separation. God is Caesar, end quote. As Huntington saw it, the refusal to separate religion and state had far-reaching political implications for Muslim politics all around the world. Among other things, it meant that in Muslim-majority countries, there was no check on political power, no space for forging public opinion, and no possibility for a concept of citizenship inclusive of non-Muslims as well as Muslims. Today, I think for many of you in the world, in this room, who particularly are academics, arguments like Huntington's may strike people, may strike you, as tiresome and perhaps a bit old hat. But I spend perhaps too much time in Washington, and I would say that if we take the, the pulse of policymakers in Washington, and if we take the pulse of policy circles, or, or sorry, the public media in the United States as well, it's startling to see how little progress we've made behind the clash of civilizations debate, now more than 10 years old. So in my remarks this evening, I won't pretend to improve single-handedly on what I think is largely a still lamentable 
state of affairs. What I do want to suggest, however, is that over the past decade, students of Muslim politics, both Muslims and non-Muslims, have pulled together an impressive body of empirical materials, the net effect of which is to provide us with a more nuanced, and I would also say more optimistic sense of democracy's possibility in Muslim-majority countries. There are 47 such countries, depending on how you count, and with sizable Muslim, with thus sizable Muslim minorities in places like India and the West, the total world population comes to at least 1.2 billion people right now. By 2025, just a few more years, that figure will be that figure of the Muslim population will be closing in on 2 billion people, or about at that time one quarter of the globe's population. This is to say that the future of Muslim politics will affect all of us, Muslim and non-Muslim. The topic is complex and time is short, so let me move quickly into my arguments based on this overview of research done in the last few years on Muslim politics. What I'll try to do tonight is make four basic points. I'll expand on them after giving you a very quick summary of what they are. First, Drawing on the work of Al Stepan, a political scientist, as well as several others, I will suggest that when empirical measures, rather than Mr. Huntington's alleged civilizational traits, are referenced, it turns out there is no democracy deficit in the Muslim world. A substantial number of, with apologies, non-Arab Muslim countries have made impressive headway toward consolidating electoral democracy. However, there does appear to be a relative democracy deficit in the 18 to 20 percent of the world that happens to be Arab. I'm not going to explain that exception, but I'm trying to suggest it is the exception. The general trend is far more optimistic. Second, survey data also indicates that in most Muslim-majority countries, even those where the government has made little democratic prog progress, such as some of the Arab Muslim countries in the Middle East, the Muslim public views democratic institutions quite favorably. Indeed, at rates comparable to that of Western publics. That's an extremely interesting fact. We can be skeptical about surveys, but they still require reflection. And indeed, at rates considerably higher than Christian or Orthodox and former communist countries. Their enthusiasm for democracy is less than Muslim-majority countries. Third, notwithstanding their interest in democratic institutions, a significant portion of these Muslim publics have notably unliberal ideas on women and non-Muslims. Whether this attitude presents a serious obstacle to democratization is a question on which analysts, again Muslim and non-Muslim, disagree. I believe it can have a negative effect on the prospects for democratization. Uh, but what I'm going to suggest tonight, very quickly, is that women's roles are among the fastest changing social realities in the Muslim world today. The continuing transformation, their continuing transformation, promises to be one of the greatest influences on Muslim politics in the coming generation. Fourth and last, the accumulated research suggests democratization is alive and well in the Muslim world, at least in that 80% of the Muslim world that is non-Arab. However, the evidence also indicates that where the process moves forward, the process, uh, process of democratization, its accompanying political culture may more closely resemble what I've referred to as civil Islamic 
or what other people refer to as Muslim democracy, rather than the Atlantic liberal model through which Americans and Britons prefer to think about democracy. In particular, individualism, especially of the expressive individualist sort, if you're a sociologist, but individualism will probably figure somewhat less prominently in the public affairs and public discourse of Muslim-majority societies, whereas religion will figure more centrally in that public culture. In evaluating this contrast between emerging Muslim democracies and Western democracies, it's important that Western observers remember that democratization in the 19th century West took place not in states with a neatly bounded separation of church and state, the one that they've developed today, but in societies where there were as yet extensive collaborations across the religion-state divide. So on to point one, the Muslim democracy uh, gap. The question of whether there is in fact um, a democracy deficit in the political performance of the 47 or so Muslim-majority countries in the world was the subject of two articles in 2003 and 2004 by uh, a friend of mine, Alfred Stefan, and assistant, his assistant, Graham B. Robertson. They took this issue on squarely, drawing on two, they drew on the two richest data sets on democracy and civil liberties around the world that political scientists deal with. That is the Polity Project and Freedom Houses serve annual surveys of political rights and civil liberties. Rather than to trying to provide comprehensive measures of all aspects of democratic performance, and my apologies if you're not a political scientist, Stepan and Robertson limited their discussion to electoral, what they called electoral competitiveness. They deemed a country electorally competitive if it met two conditions. First, the government sprang from reasonably fair elections. And second, the elected government was able to fill the most important political offices rather than having those important political offices uh, appointed by somebody who was not elected. So with this measure in hand, Stepan and Robertson reviewed the Freedom House and Polity Project data on political performance in Muslim-majority countries over the years from 1973 to 2002, a very long stretch of time. The results of this 30-year comparison were nothing less than startling. Of some 29, again, non-Arab Muslim-majority countries, more than a third enjoyed significant political rights for at least three years, while more than a quarter experienced at least five consecutive years of good performance, electoral competitiveness. I should just say, again, if you're not familiar with these surveys, these are extremely respectable scores for societies at the level of socioeconomic development that these non-Arab Muslim majority societies are. By contrast, among Arab Muslim countries, not a single one experienced five years of consecutive electoral competitiveness, and only, uh, and only one experienced, th that was Lebanon, experienced three years of uh, electoral competitiveness. The authors concluded that, quote, a non-Arab Muslim majority country was almost 20 times more likely to be electorally competitive than an Arab Muslim majority country. So a stark contrast, and I'm not obviously aiming this as criticism of uh, Arab Muslim brothers and sisters. I'm just trying to underscore the fact that there is no democracy deficit in most, indeed, the great majority of uh, 
Muslim-majority countries in the world. Adding to this stark contrast is the fact that the overall pattern of this high performance of non-Arab Muslim-majority countries defies several familiar arguments on the conditions that facilitate democracy. Among political scientists, the developmental thesis, as it's called casually, predicts that as a country's per capita income increases, so too do its chances for electoral competitiveness and therefore a measure of democratization. Measured against this standard of increasing incomes, some 44% of Arab countries underachieve relative to their income levels. And no Arab Muslim country overachieves relative to its uh, income levels. By contrast, Stefan and Robertson observe a full 31% of the non-Arab Muslim majority countries are overachievers relative to their income levels. I'll return to that in a moment, but that's an extremely impressive figure. Very, very impressive, impressive very good uh, democratic electoral performance. Another way in which the non-Arab Muslim-majority countries defy conventional expectations has to do with ethno-linguistic diversity. As you may recall, John Stuart Mill, uh, the English political philosopher, believed that ethno-linguistic ethno diversity was inimical to democracy. It was bad for democracy. More recently, uh, Bob Putnam at Harvard University has revived this idea, suggesting that growing uh, pluralism in the United States is also bad for a spirit of civic-mindedness. Now, what's so interesting about the contrast between Arab and non-Arab Muslim-majority countries, then, is that many among the electorally competitive, the democratically healthy non-Arab countries are also ethno-linguistically ethno diverse, places like Indonesia, Pakistan, and uh, Bangladesh. By contrast, the Arab countries, which tend to be, again, electorally non-competitive, poor performers, begin with some of the lowest levels of ethno-linguistic diversity in the world. But that apparently doesn't help them make democracy work. In their conclusion, just to finish with this first point, Stepan and Robertson observed that in matters of electoral competitiveness, the 16 Arab countries comprise the single largest block among all the world's states that underachieve relative to their levels of economic development. And again, I don't say that to cast aspersions at Arab Muslim friends. By contrast, here's the striking fact, the 31 Muslim majority but non-Arab Muslim countries make up the single largest block of electoral overachievers in terms of electoral competitiveness relative to their level of economic development of all countries in the world, the single largest block. They're doing very well, very well in terms of democratization. The overachievers include countries as socially varied as Turkey, Senegal, Mali, Bangladesh, and Indonesia. In a word, inasmuch as there is a democracy deficit in the Muslim world, it has very little to do, apparently, with Islamic culture as a whole. My second point now. My second point this evening is the concerns not political performance, like what I've just been talking about, but support for democracy is expressed in public opinion surveys in Muslim-majority countries. And with all, uh, I have to, as an aside, apologize if there are any anthropologists in the word I, in the uh, room. I know sort of taking um, survey data seriously is 
grounds for excommunication in anthropology. And not only do I take them seriously and think you ha we have to sort of integrate them into the type of analysis that we do, but I actually do survey research myself in addition to ethnography and living in communities and uh, the sort of deep ethnography that people like Clifford Garrett's popularized. So I'm not interested uh, just in, in per pub political performance here, but in public opinion surveys. And if the naysayers on Islam and democracy, like Mr. Huntington, were right, we would expect to find not only poor democratic performance in Muslim-majority countries, but also broad swaths of public opinion opposed to democracy on the grounds that it is antithetical to Islam. So what do we see? Although in the 1970s and 1980s, there were very few comparative studies on public opinion in Muslim-majority countries, largely because the survey, big survey research outfits were not allowed in, uh, since the 1990s, we've seen a small revolution in survey research in Muslim-majority countries. We now have solid data from the Pew Public Forum, the World Values Surveys, about which I'll say more in a moment, the Gallup organization, and a host of other private, more singularly academic researchers. Although most of these surveys cover diverse topics in addition to democracy and human rights and attitudes towards women's rights and things like that, several touch very directly on the question of Muslim public's attitudes towards democratic institutions. Space doesn't uh, allow me, or time doesn't allow me to talk about all these uh, surveys in any comprehensive way, but I'd like to highlight just a few points relevant for the points, the issues that we're talking about tonight. First, the data on public support for democracy indicates that in most, but not all, but the majority of Muslim-majority countries, a solid majority, in fact, a very high majority in most countries of respondents believe that democracy is a good form of government and that what it is one that should be implemented in their own countries. The fact that many respondents in Arab Muslim-majority countries share this opinion with their non-Arab Muslim counterparts indicates that it's not public opinion that is holding back democratic progress in the Arab Muslim world, but certain types of institutional impasses. Pippa Norris and Ronald Inglehart. Ron Inglehart is the sort of dean of the World Value Survey. For those of you in political scientists, you're familiar with that. But at any rate, he's, a, he's something of a legend among survey researchers. Uh, and they, Pippa Norris, a younger colleague of his at Harvard, and Ron, uh, in 2004, did a reanalysis of the most recent round of World Values uh, survey data, specifically looking at democracy in Muslim-majority countries. World Values teams now have carried out, this is an important detail, so bear with me, uh, World Values surveys have now been carried out in 11 Muslim-majority countries, Algeria, Jordan, Pakistan, Turkey, Azerbaijan, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Albania, Morocco, Iran, and Egypt, no Saudi Arabia, as you can see. Although the political regimes operative in these countries vary greatly, Norris and Inglehart report that attitudes towards democracy do not. The majority of people in all of these countries view democracy as a good form of government and one to which they aspire, without exception, all 11 countries. Comparing survey data from these countries with the West, Norris and Inglehart note, quote, there were no significant differences between the publics living in the West and in Muslim religious cultures in approval of how democracy works in practice, in support for democratic ideals, and in approval of strong leadership. Now I have more to say in a moment about the World Value Survey 
there's, I'm going to make a small criticism of it, notwithstanding my use of it tonight. But for the moment, let it suffice to say that the surveys, that surveys carried out by other individuals and organizations, including my own surveys in Indonesia, point to much the same conclusion, albeit with a few notable caveats. The general conclusion is that most Muslim publics in most countries indeed think very, very highly of democratic governance. Now, the caveats are that there are a few exceptions. And the exceptions include, in particular, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, and Libya, all of which diverge from the pro-democracy norm in the sense that the majority of publics in these countries don't appear to think democracy is a good idea. Survey and journalistic data from these latter countries indicates that a sizable plurality, or again an outright majority of respondents in Libya, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf, oppose democracy often or typically on the grounds that it's contrary to Islam. All this is to say that although public opinion in the Muslim world is generally very, very supportive of democracy, uh, that opinion is by no means monolithic and there are in particular a few country exceptions. The second and final point of concerning my second point here uh, is that the public's commitment to democracy does have one sort of interesting line or current of tension. And it's concerned or it touches on an issue or it's related to an issue of ambivalence toward equal rights for women and for non-Muslims. So there is a little interesting blip that appears in the survey data whereby attitudes on women and non-Muslims sound in the eyes of some researchers, myself included, sound um, somewhat inconsistent with our understanding of what makes democracy work. This ambivalence raises the question as to whether the support for democracies expressed in the surveys is actually all that it seems to be. And there are some very strong skeptics. I'm not going to be, but one has to acknowledge that. So time does not allow me to discuss the question of non-Muslims. That's an interesting and indeed very, very important issue in its own right. Uh, but in my third section of remarks today, I want to focus in particular on the thorny issue of Islam, women, and democracy. Is this an Achilles heel in the data, in the public's attitudes towards democracy? As the political scientist Stephen Fish has recently observed, gender practices and gender ideologies in Muslim-majority countries are anything but uniform. They vary enormously from Mali to Egypt, two countries not all that far from each other, and then all the more from Pakistan to Indonesia. Enormous variation. The variation reminds us that neither Islam nor Islamic law, Sharia, is the single or singular determinant of the Muslim public's attitudes on gender. There's got to be something else going on because the Sharia and Islam in terms of gender issues doesn't vary as greatly at all as do those national cultures on questions of women in particular. In short, gender matters in Muslim-majority countries, but it matters in a way that is complex, socially embedded, and contextually variable and indeed contested. Now this variation acknowledged, Stephen Fish goes on to point out that in many Muslim-majority countries, particularly those located in the Middle East, not South Asia or Southeast Asia or Africa, so the Middle Eastern countries that many people and certainly the media regard as the core Muslim countries, in many Muslim-majority countries, a substantial proportion of the Muslim population uh, subscribes to what are generally regarded as gender, could be regarded as gender inequitable views. 
This finding also emerged as a central theme of Pippa Norris and Ron Englehart's World Values Survey data, which I spoke about earlier. Norris and Englehart conclude that the real clash of cultures between Muslims in the West does exist, but it doesn't have anything to do with democracy. It has to do with gender and sex sexuality. Let me give you a quote from Norris and Englehart. Any, they're taking exception, obviously, to Sam Huntington. Any claim of a clash of civilizations based on fundamentally different political goals held by Western and Muslim societies represents a great oversimplification of the evidence. Any deep-seated divisions between Islam and the West will revolve far more strongly around social rather than political values, especially concerning the issues of sexual liberalization and gender equality." End quote. Muslim publics are far more likely than their Western counterparts today. Of course, the Western public even a generation ago would have looked very, very different. But today, uh, Muslim publics are far more likely than their Western counterparts to have what Westerners would regard as relatively conservative views on gender equality, abortion, divorce, and perhaps most strongly, homosexuality. What are we to make of this gender difference? Does it make a difference in terms of poli politics and democratization in particular? Now, Norris and Englehart, I have to say just a little bit more about them, explain the difference away in a very interesting way uh, by, with reference to Englehart's much discussed concepts and models of what he calls modernization and postmodernization. Bear with me here for a moment if you're not familiar with this particular argument. This is a model modernization and postmodernization that Englehart in particular has been refining over the last quarter century and it has and it leads him and Norris to conclude that the gender differences and the sexuality differences that one sees between Muslim societies in the West really doesn't have that much to do with Islam it has to do with your level of uh, of socioeconomic development they concede and I'll quote them here Quote, each society's religious legacies and historical experiences matter and influence this gender and sexual values that they've picked up. But the, real sympathy, the author's real sympathy lies with the idea that religion really doesn't matter as much as it's made out to be, as does that level, again, of socioeconomic development. In particular, they point out that socioeconomic change brings, as they call it, quote, systematic, predictable changes in gender roles that, in effect, are very similar across cultures, even when the cultures have different religious traditions. And they describe it, Englehart in particular describes it in this way. He says, in the early phases of modernization, industrialization reduces fertility rates, educates women, and expands employment opportunities for women. Varies very little across culture. And that's what we'll see during the modernization phase, he says. In the next phase of development, which he calls postmodernization, and which with the West has experienced, but except for a few elite circles, the Muslim world has not, in the postmodernization phase of socioeconomic development, we see, quote, a shift toward greater gender equality as women move into higher status economic and political roles. The period also ushers in, and I'm quoting them here, a more permissive and liberal sexuality, including tolerance of divorce, abortion, and homosexuality. It has much less to do with religion, uh, Norris and Englehart say, than it does levels of socioeconomic development. Norris and Englehart conclude that because their societies have not yet made the plunge into postmodernization for simple economic reason, young Muslims, the younger generation that they 
are particularly interested to see if, how different are they, their views on women and sexuality and homosexuality remain very, very different. Indeed, they describe them, their word, as unchanged, in con and I'm quoting Norris and Inglehart, in contrast to the transformation of lifestyles and beliefs experienced among their peers living in Western post-industrial societies. Post-industrialization, post-modernization makes you much more likely to be sexually liberal. Muslim societies haven't post-modernized yet, but they will, maybe. That's the argument. Now, here's my dissent. Although I'm an admirer, I think I'm the only anthropologist I've ever met who actually is an admirer of the World Values Survey. I'm sure there are others, but I am, and I say that quite sincerely. I think it's an amazing, amazing body of data. It needs a lot of analysis, supplementary analysis, but it's an extremely impressive, impressive body of material that anthropologists, sociologists, and others, as in addition to political scientists, should be thinking about. So I'm, although I'm an admirer of the World Value Survey, I think the comparative evidence from Muslim societies indicates that we have to very seriously qualify Norris and Engelhardt's conclusions in two very simple ways. First, rather than being traditional and unchanging, as Norris and Engelhardt suggest, women's roles in most Muslim-majority societies, at least those are in a phase of fairly aggressive socioeconomic development, which most are, uh, but rather than being unchanging, women's roles in the Muslim world are in the midst of an extraordinary, great transformation, if I can use that phrase, a transformation that's characterized above all by women's movement into education, not least of all higher education. There's more women in higher education in Egypt and Malaysia, in universities, those two countries, just to take two, more women graduates than there are men in those two countries. So we have this profound transformation of women's roles in terms of education, and we're seeing somewhat lagging behind, but it's happening too, profound shifts all across the Muslim world uh, in women's participation in uh, public employment and other forms of participation outside the household, including, as I'll say in a moment, politics. In other words, behind and beyond the seemingly traditional opinions captured in the World Value Surveys, and they do sound traditional, but behind that edifice, that opinion edifice, gender cultures in Muslim lands, particularly as regards women, are actually fluid, contested, and enormously changing. The second point to be made about this gender transformation is perhaps obvious, but it's surprising how few people actually comment on it. The point to which I'm referring to is that contrary to the situation of women's liberation, women's movement into employment, and the whole, all the changes that we know took place in gender from the 1960s on, contrary to the pattern in the West, the gender transformation, the great gender transformation underway in Muslim lands has taken place at more or less the same time as those countries, Muslim-majority countries, have experienced an Islamic resurgence. I don't mean a political resurgence, I mean a resurgence of religious piety, religious education, religious devotion. Not radicalism, because most of the re Islamic resurgence has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with personal piety, praying, bearing yourself in a way, carrying yourself, dressing yourself in a way that you feel is more consonant with the ideals of your religion. And it's that sort of resurgence that has taken place at the same time that this change in education and employment has become. Sociologists of religion in the West, by contrast, they have reached, and I, I work on this at the institute that I work for, we specialize in sort of comparative sociology of religious change all around the world. 
And sociologists disagree as to exactly what's, exactly what's going on in the West. But the general consent, because the pattern in the United States where you have relatively high levels of religiosity, in fact, very high levels of religiosity, stands in striking contrast to everywhere in Western Europe. It used to be the Southern European countries were exception, Italy, Spain. It's no longer. It's sort of radical, rampant, galloping secularization is the norm in Western Europe. It's not in the United States. So the people argue about this. But nonetheless, the general trend is that at the very least in Western Europe and to a certain degree in the United States too, the period of, if you will, the women's movement, women's education, women's movement into employment and education coincided with what Hugh MacLeod, a great historian of religion, UK based and British himself, has called the de-Christianization of Western Europe. And I don't think that's too strong of a phrase. I think that is what's taking place in Europe. It's not taking place in the United States. But in Europe, we're seeing not merely a kind of neutral secularization, but as McLeod puts it, not for any partisan reasons, de-Christianization of Europe. So there's a big, big difference. De-Christianization in Western Europe and then a certain degree of secularization in the United States, whereas women's movement, women's employment in the Muslim world has coincided with an unprecedented, absolutely, absolutely unprecedented resurgence in piety and public religious observation. Not political Islam per se, small wing of the resurgence is political, but above all this resurgence in piety and learning. So not surprisingly, one consequence of this coincidence of Islamic revival and changes in women's roles, the simultaneity of the two processes, has been that the changes in women's roles have become a central focus of religious debate. How could it be otherwise? As I said, it's rather obvious, but it's astonishing how few people talk about this, about the changes in the women's role coinciding with something very different from what happened in the West when women's roles were changing in the mid-20th century on. Indeed, I would suggest, I don't think it's too strong, women's roles have quickly become the most hotly, or at least one of the most hotly debated, debated of issues in the culture wars raging across the Muslim world today. And that's what we have, culture wars, not physical wars, certainly in Iraq we do, but culture wars like those in the United States are now ubiquitous across Muslim lands. The dispute affects things the meaning of which might at first sight appear obvious to Western observers, particularly those of a secular bent, such as the widespread adoption of headscarves. What's this mean? Many secular European commentators in particular, I think the Americans have done better. Many secular European commentators have described veiling as if its meaning were unitary, singular, part and parcel of a reactionary patriarchal uh, culture inimical to women's self-expression. But the, the veiling debate in France, I think, illustrating this with particular force. But the meaning and uses of the veil are anything but univocal when you actually speak to Muslims and Muslim women. As Jenny White, an analyst of Turkey and a colleague of mine, has reported in contemporary Turkey, conservative activists tend to see veiling as part of, as she puts it, I'm quoting her, a religio-cultural code of behavior prescribing the spatial segregation of men and women and the authority of fathers and husbands over daughters and wives and of men over women. In other words, there is a patriarchal twist sometimes in some families to veiling. By contrast, and I think this is the main current, however, young women activists and young educated women generally see veiling not as a symbol of patriarchy, but as an expression of personal piety and social empowerment. 
a tool that, and now I quote Jenny again, has paved the way for the movement of female bodies through a variety of spaces that had previously been close, closed to them. And that is very real, such as employment, movement into employment, into, in offices and schools and things where it would have been very difficult to do this in the past. Variations on this conflict of interpretations over the veil are found all across Muslim-majority countries, although, as I said, I think the second of the two interpretations is the one that is ascendant because it reflects more closely the profound changes taking place in women's roles. In politics, the coincidence of gender change and heightened religious observances resulted in similarly complex, ambivalent outcomes. Women were central players in the student activist groups that I studied that helped to overthrow President Suharto in May 1998. They were central players in the pro-democracy movement, veiled women. Women were also active in the grassroots organizations that helped to catapult moderate Islamist parties like today's AK party in Turkey uh, to power in the late 1990s. Very, very prominent role for women. Women activists are also, also played a role in the conservative wing of the Iranian revolution that brought uh, Ayatollah Khomeini to power, but they've also been very, very central in the pro-democracy, pro-pluralism movement that emerged in the uh, post-Khomeini period, particularly during the and after the Khatami presidency. And there are many other examples, including from Indonesia, where Don and I work. What political conclusion, then, can we draw from these developments? I think it would be a mistake to conclude that the great gender transformation underway in Muslim lands is merely a regional variant of liberal emancipatory progress that took place earlier in the West. I also think it would be a mistake just to interpret it as an expression of socioeconomic uh, change, as Norris, just an expression of socioeconomic change, as Pippa Norris and Ron Englehart suggest. Much as Norris and Englehart argue, yes, there are commonalities to the changing nature of women's roles in the West and in the Muslim world, centered especially around women's greater involvement in education and public employment, as well as a variety of fertility changes and demographic changes that I haven't tried to burden you with tonight since I'm already trying to do too much. But uh, there are also differences. There are very, very profound differences between the histories of women's changes, changing women role, women's roles in the West and in the Muslim world. The most important of these has to do, again, with the most obvious but the most commonly overlooked, namely the contrasting biography of religion in the late 20th century in the West as opposed to Muslim-majority countries. In the West, again, just to say it, especially in this case in Western Europe, changes in women's roles have taken place against the backdrop of, as I called it earlier, a galloping secularization and dechristianization of public institutions. The political discourse accompanying these changes, again, particularly in Western Europe, has, with only a few exceptions, been a secular and liberal and typically, you wouldn't even say de-Christianized because Christianity or religion generally didn't figure in it, unlike, interestingly, the American Civil Rights Movement. There is a contrast. The women's movement in the United States has had a very, very meager sort of representation of the kinds of ideas that in the civil rights movement figured more centrally and which were not as fully secular and liberal in the sense that I'm using it here, individualist, as, uh, as the women's movement became. And I'm, that's not a criticism, it's just an observation trying to again underscore the profound differences between what's happened in the Muslim world as where the background has not been secularization. So, the Muslim countries do, of course, have their share of secular feminists, although their numbers in most countries, quite frankly, in the poll data indicates this, are 
are, are very, very small, very, very small. But there's a much larger number of religiously observant Muslim women determined to work out a new deal for their female fellows. Not quite the same deal as the secular feminists might want, but a new deal nonetheless. Most of these women express their hopes and desires through a discourse not of individual autonomy and choice, a phrase that emphasizes individual, the individuality emphasis of secular feminism, but with references to two themes that really are quite different from feminism in the West. That is, first, an affirmation of women's shared dignity with men as creatures of an all-powerful, all-just, and all-loving God. Central theme in some women's discourse, Muslim women's discourse. And second, an emphasis on the need for all believers to adopt a more activist approach to their religion, to take responsibility for their religion. That means women too. Learn your religion, study your religion. Some analysts might be tempted to dismiss the religious element in the Muslim gender transformation as if it were merely a superstructural derivative of an economic and educational base, use that old language that some of you, probably not very many of you, but some of you might be familiar with base superstructure. But I think we would do well to resist the temptation to strip these two events of their cultural and religious specificity. What is distinctive about gender change in the contemporary Muslim world is that it bears the imprint of, yes, the educational, demographic, and life opportunity employment changes that Norris and Engelhart rightly highlight, but it also bears the imprint of an Islamic revival that has reached into the deepest recesses of public and subjective life. Let me move ahead to my last point, Muslim democracy, Muslim democracy. Time is short, so I'm gonna to have to be very quick here, uh, and my fourth point will also sort of stand in as a conclusion. I've tried to suggest tonight that the survey and ethnographic data and a variety of other sources confirm four facts, four basic facts. First, there is widespread public support for democracy in most, albeit not all, Muslim-majority countries. Second, notwithstanding this fact, Arab-Muslim countries have demonstrated a much weaker capacity to canalize that support into effective, effectively consolidated democratic institutions. Third, certain features of public and political culture identified in the modern West with democracy and liberalism, such as gender equality, do not yet figure as prominently in the public cultures of the Muslim world as in the West, in a secular and liberal mode, I should add. But, and this was my fourth point, there's a enormous amount of gender turbulence afoot nonetheless in the Muslim world. It is a great transformation. And educated women, I'm making this claim without really being able to prove it, but I hope you'll sort of at least find it worth thinking about. Educated women are the silent vanguard of an extraordinary transformation of Muslim culture and politics that has begun and which will continue over the next generation. What does all this mean for the type of democratization likely to take place in the Muslim world? One striking feature, I believe, will be that the public culture at the heart of this process will continue to diverge from that which has prevailed in most of the liberal West since the 1960s. In particular, as it brings more citizens into the political process, into public participation, democratization in the Muslim world may have the curious effect of not secularizing or de-Islamizing the public sphere, but actually increasing demands for the state and other public institutions to take a role in the socialization and defense 
of public morals and religious education. This was an issue that I hinted at in my review of Abdullahi Ahmed Al-Naim's book to which Don referred and I was taking gentle exception to this, this kind and courageous man, but I, I must disagree. Religious education in public schools, the call to prayer on radio and television, state-coordinated zakat or alms collection, these and other collaborations across the state-society divide, to use a political science jargon, have already become the norm rather than the exception in the late modern Muslim world. And I suspect this collaboration, this gentle collaboration between religious actors and state institutions will remain the norm and may actually become even stronger as more Muslim polities become more democratic. Many Western scholars in hearing this will gasp. As with the development of democracy in Western Europe in the late 19th century, however, we have to remember, we, we have to recognize that these collaborations may not be conducive, and let me choose my words very critically here, think of a kind of rational choice idiom for a moment, may not be conducive to the maximization of individual choice and individual liberty in matters of religion. But when you maximize, you're focusing on one aim, one end. And it's what I'm suggesting in effect is that Islamic democracies are trying to strike a balance among a number of variables, just as most of the, of the West did when it was democratizing in the 19th century and before the tumultuous changes of the 1960s. Contrary to the claims of Islamist ideologues, a qualified separation of state and religious authority, a qualified separation of state, state and authority has been uh, the rule rather than the exception in most of the Muslim world since the death of the prophet Muhammad in 632 Common Era. There was a separation, a qualified separation, but a separation because no one could be the prophet. No one could fuse the religious authority and the political authority in the way that the prophet did. And there was no such fusion to that degree ever again. A key tenet of radical Islamists today in the Muslim world is that, of course, this separation must be ended once and for all, and that the establishment of an Islamic state that fuses religious and state authority and makes Islamic law the sole source of legislation, that's the way to go. Where this demand is linked to an understanding of the Sharia as unchanging and all-encompassing, unchanging being the critical term here, unchanging with context, one sees a formula as Abdul Karim Sarush, and in here I agree with Abdullahi Ahmed An Naim, one sees a formula, a risk of totalitarian abuse in the name of religion. However, and here's where I'm not agreeing with Abdullahi Ahmed An Naim. However, if the radicals, the ones who want this fusion, this impossible fusion of religion, there is no prophet, Muhammad now, and there can't be, and there shouldn't be. I think most pious Muslims recognize. If the radicals with this rather utopian fusion model can be held at bay, the outcome of qualified state support and collaboration need not be so dire. I realize I'm going to lose a lot of the audience here. Instead, as with Western European democracies in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, most of which, we have to remember, had established churches, not until the beginning of the 20th century, France was the only one who got away with it. Not until the middle of the 1940s and the Second World War, but most European countries had established churches until, if, if, if they, did, they 
many of them still have them today, but most had them until the 1960s and the 1970s. It was a late 20th century, in other words, it was a 1960s development that led to the de-churching, the disestablishment of churches in Western Europe. The United States and France should not be taken as the norm. They're the exception. Established churches were the norm at in Christian Europe at precisely the same time, during the same era, that those countries were undergoing, in however imperfect and frequently reversed away, processes of democratization. And my confidence, it is my hope perhaps I should say, is that Muslim societies too, rather than erecting a high wall between religion and state, will evolve more in the way of these late 19th and early 20th century states. That is with modest but not massively extensive collaboration between state and society on critical religious issues. Although such an arrangement will be far from what liberal secular theorists might regard as ideal and those who want a maximization of religious liberty, it's not ideal. I believe this is the most likely path through which democratization will proceed in the Muslim world. And it's not a bad path at all. Uh, my last section. Recently, several analysts have taken this point, last point further, suggesting that democracy emerging in Muslim-majority societies will be so different from the late modern West that it's better identified as Muslim rather than liberal. I've preferred to use the phrase civil democracy as opposed to liberal democracy. So it was to emphasize that whereas liberal democracy today, since the 1960s, not in the 19th century, but in the late 20th century, liberal democracy highlights the autonomy of the individual. There was, of course, some of that in the 19th century, but in practice it was very different. A civil democracy allows for a variety of arrangements and different types of balances rather than just highlighting the autonomy of the individual as people like Rawls and others would prefer. And I think that it will be qualified arrangements of civil Islam or a Muslim democracy, if you will, like this that will emerge in the Muslim world. All this is to say, my last comments, that finally the empirical research over the past 15 years shows, I think, that there's no unbridgeable gap in the Muslim world between the ideals of Islam and democracy. We can expect, we should expect many Muslim majority countries to continue to make progress toward the consolidation of democratic institutions because it's in their interest, not because of Western models, Western hegemony. However, most of these democracies are likely to be characterized by perhaps unsecular collaborations across the state mosque divide rather than the high wall preferred by most Western liberals at least since the 1960s with the notable exception of the United States and France which erected a relatively high wall earlier on. It's worth noting that the spread of democracy in the Muslim world does not mean, what I'm not saying tonight, is that politics in those countries that become more democratic will necessarily be more warmly consensual or cozy all one has to do is watch American democracy and recognize that's not an intrinsic quality of democracy at all. This was not and is not still, coziness is not a quality of democracy in the West, least of all the United States. In fact, democracy's advent, and this is what I expect, may actually hasten the emergence of Muslim counterparts to Muslim world counterparts to America's culture wars in which mobilized citizens noisily demand the right to have their ethical opinions heard, and those ethical opinions differ. And people argue quite fiercely, as Americans do over abortion. But 
that, of course, is the point. Democracy, Mr. Fukuyama notwithstanding, and I know him and I actually like him, but democracy is not the end of history. It's the beginning of a new kind of history whereby citizens argue over serious ethical and political issues, but it's hoped, and sometimes it is just a hope, they do so in civil and law-abiding ways. The democratic ideal has captured the imagination of many Muslims, not because of Western hegemonies, as many post-colonial critics suggest, but because Muslim citizens look to democracy as something that can resolve their vexing political and moral problems in a more participatory and peaceful way. Last paragraph. Plural in its organizations and meaning, there is no single modernity, nor is there but one form of civility in democracy, nor is there one form of culture accompanying democracy. However, the restructuration of life worlds, like that I've described for women tonight, the restructuration of life worlds characteristic of our era is so massive and the aspirations for dignity and participation so widespread that more than any time in human history, large numbers of people of all faiths, of all civilizations, find themselves drawn to this curious and very difficult little ideal we call democracy. Millions of Muslims have come to share in this dream. Western observers can assist the democratization process in the Muslim world by recognizing that first, this momentous transition is indeed taking place. And second, its outcome will inevitably bear the very, very clear imprint of Islamic institutions and values. Thank you.